Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined as ever today by Charlie Lesniak-Eccleshare and James <laughs> Slabber-Moore. <laughs> this is, I hope, our penultimate podcast before football returns on Friday the 19th of June. Charlie, just how excited are you? Very excited. Um, I was trying to think of a, a sort of Slabber-Lesniak scale, but I couldn't really come up with one. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, I can't believe it's like coming up to three months um, since we lasted a game. It almost is exactly three months, I think, since that Spurs-Leipzig game. Um, so yeah, very excited and it does feel like we're ready. Uh, it's been a long, long wait. Yeah, I'm at, I'm at like sort of Paul McVeigh levels of excitement now. Um, <laughs> so I just, I've just plucked that out of nowhere. I have no idea what his, what his ratio is like. Although I think he might have scored a Premier League goal, so... I mean, it could be quite good. Uh, but yeah, sorry, to answer your question, yes. I'm ready and excited and waiting. How do we feel the first tranche of um, fixture announcements works for Spurs? The big Friday night glamour glamour kickoff against Manchester United. Yeah, that's all. That's the one we were expecting. Um, it, it, it had that feel. It's it's the best game, isn't it, really? Well, there's Ever- is there Everton-Liverpool? That's the first weekend as well, isn't it? But um, yeah, it always had the feeling of quite a glamour tie. Um so yeah it should be fun I mean it's weird because you know you, you think Friday night under the lights but obviously it's a under the lights of an empty stadium is not uh it's not quite the same thing but um it's a really good one to look forward to probably from our point of view as as reporters but maybe James for you it's a bit of an anxiety inducing one given how much is at stake maybe you'd rather a kind of villa at home yeah I mean I think it would be quite good to get maybe a sort of, yeah like you say a home game Again, not that that necessarily makes much difference now, home or away, uh, but against a sort of mid-table team who aren't really going to have much to play for or who are going to kind of be feeling their way into it perhaps a little bit more. Can I just pick you up on something there, James? I, I On that kind of mid-table teams being the best to, to play at this time of the season, I, I once looked into this and it's more the case that teams down the bottom of the table are the teams you want to play because though they might be fighting for their lives, that's a bit of a fallacy and actually generally the worst teams tend to be uh, as you'd expect, worse and who you want to play. Whereas often mid-table teams, you think are kind of on the beach and won't have anything to play for, but they can often spring surprises. If you think you know, Norwich at home was a game that I think Spurs lost, had their sort of top four hopes derailed, and that was a team who were, had nothing to play for. So um, yeah, just something to think about. Well, my thinking is more that in these circumstances, I think players in teams who are, and I don't think this applies to many clubs, but players at teams who aren't really like aiming for Europe or looking over their shoulder, and that probably is kind of four or five teams. I just think in these circumstances, they're perhaps far less likely to be motivated to do anything. Um, I kind of I don't want to do players a disservice, but I do wonder whether and there is money at stake, obviously, for clubs. But I do wonder whether, like, if you're you know currently sat in sort of eleven or twelve. Uh, you're effectively safe and you're effectively ruled out of the running for Europe whether you might just sort of be turning up and going through the motions a little bit and if you're playing against a highly motivated team which Spurs should be that you could kind of be quite easily dispatched but I suppose we'll see when the matches start up because off the top of my head I can't think of one but there must be a fixture like that Well so so far the ones that have been confirmed are United on Friday the 19th of June then West Ham at home on Tuesday the 23rd of June and then uh, they haven't got game that weekend because it's the FA Cup quarterfinals and then a really big one which is Sheffield United away on 2nd of July 
on the Thursday, which I think is the kind of game we just we talked about this last week, where Spurs might be able to take advantage of the fact that they're not going to like a traditional Bramall Lane. Um, and you know, I think with Shef- I, I think Sheffield United are going to be one of those teams who will suffer the most from not being able to play in front of their fans. So it might well be that after that game, if Spurs have taken let's say six, six, seven, eight, nine points then their position could could be an awful lot stronger in terms of the pursuit of the Champions League places. Sheffield United as well will have played in the FA Cup that weekend. Um, so you would think that might favour Spurs. And Sheffield United have a smaller squad. which I, And I do think that will help Tottenham um, compared to teams like that, um, who have done amazingly well so far. But you'd think that the, the traditional big six... Uh, are no no one's used to what we're about to have, but they are used to playing two games in a week for weeks on end. I mean, you think how much Mourinho made of that when he took over for his first couple of months, whereas uh, a lot of the teams in the division just aren't used to that. You know, normally for them by uh, this time of the season, uh, things are kind of thinning out, winding down. So it will be interesting to see how clubs like Sheffield United cope with the relentlessness of what's going to be the fixture schedule. I mean, it is right to highlight that game as well, and I'm sure we'll come on to it in the weeks to come. But as big as the United game is, that Sheffield United game, sorry, as big as that Manchester United game is, the the Sheffield United game will be almost at the same level, won't it, really? I, you know, I think once you kind of get past that, the fixtures are maybe slightly more straightforward. Um, I mean, Newcastle away probably don't have a lot to play for. Bournemouth away in the relegation scrap, but as Charlie was saying, you know, the bad teams are bad for a reason, right? Uh, Leicester right at the end, who perhaps by then might not have anything to play for. Palace again might not have anything to play for, probably won't. So then there's Arsenal in there as well, which obviously will be a big game whenever it falls. So I, th- I think the Manchester United, those first three games may well dictate exactly what's going to happen for Spurs. I think if they got if they got seven or nine points from those three games, I think they could be fairly confident of getting into the top five. And again, we had to have to caveat by that by saying we're not entirely sure yet whether or not that's actually going to be enough to get into the Champions League. But you'd certainly suggest that it might be. I mean, seven points would be really good from, yeah. from these three games. I, I don't know what par is. Maybe five, something like that. I mean... A home draw against United, draw away at Sheffield United, and and beat West Ham. Yeah, that that's kind of feels about right, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. And as Spurs get closer to the resumption, Charlie, how um, what what have they been doing? Tell us about the tell us about the training game they had the other day, which some people have seen on on Twitter already. Yeah, I really enjoyed this, like watching the highlights of them, like putting their socks on and stuff outside uh, by the pitch. It's very Sunday League. Um, and I think that's something we've always imagined what it would be like if a professional team had to do Sunday League. I mean, I was disappointed they, they weren't putting up the nets, which is something I have to do each week. Um, but yeah, it had a quite a nice rustic appeal to it. And then they played, I think it was actually quite a high scoring game. Not all the goals were um, were broadcast. The the highlights that we saw were pretty abridged, uh, during which we saw Ndombele scoring. A really nice goal, bit of skill and a good finish. Uh, we saw Deli Ali scoring a good header off an Aurier cross. And then from a kind of higher up vantage point, uh, footage emerged of a, an Eric Lamella goal, a really good goal as well, which, you know, then prompted talk of uh, could he be could he be one of those rejuvenated by the break, which 
James and I were talking about and he, he's not someone we've really been speaking about as someone who was injured before the break and is now fit and I think that's because while he did have niggles before the break that's kind of par for the course with him and it might be setting ourselves up for a fool to think oh well he'll be completely fresh and free of injury because the reality with Lamella is that he often you know, d- does get these niggles. But yeah, so that was quite exciting, seeing them actually playing. I mean, it looked weird. I, I don't know what you guys thought, but when you saw those high-up views of the stands just completely empty, there was something quite eerie about it. Um, but it was cool just seeing the players. And it was, it was a mixture of a kind of A and B team from, from the looks of things. So, you know, not giving... <laughs> it, it would have played his hand a, a bit, I guess, if Mourinho had played a kind of first few seconds team. But... Um, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed seeing bits of that. It did just get me a bit excited seeing actual football in a couple of weeks. Presumably they were kind of aiming for two fairly evenly matched teams. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I think they had, I'm trying to remember how they did it, but I think they both had like one more attacking fullback and one slightly more defensive fullback. Um, again, to kind of mirror the way that they're going to play uh, when, when the play resumes. Eric Lamella wasn't in any... I don't think we mentioned him at all when we were talking about what is Mourinho's best eleven a week or two ago. And yet it would be amazing if he could be there. Like I, at the start of the season, I did a, a piece saying that Eric Lamella's season was that moment at the start of every season where you think, oh, he's going to be really good now and he's going to be play the whole whole year. And of course, it never really works out like that. But given that this represents... You know, the break that we've just had is effectively... Well, it's longer than the break that you would normally get between seasons. Maybe this will be like that. Maybe maybe mm. June and July will be like Lamella's normal August and September. And he'll hit the ground running. We'll get two Lamella seasons this season. Yeah, and he will be he will be the guy who will guide Spurs into fourth. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> As Charlie alluded to before, nine games is probably enough for him to come in, play really well look like the best player at the club then get injured again and we can do it all again in august yeah yeah, exactly yeah next season start yeah but uh two two players who are missing were davinson sanchez and giovanni lo celso um charlie do we imagine that they're injured we imagine so um we we don't know um there hasn't been official confirmation on that um you know we normally get of injury bulletins before each game but obviously in the absence of actual games uh we don't get those in the same way so hopefully for both of them it's nothing serious i mean that would be we were talking about this before weren't we how big a blow that would be if you know having got back so many of their players to then have lacelso who was you know the best player in the couple of months before the lockdown um and sanchez would be a blow as well although i'd i'd forgotten that um you know eric dyer started the last few before uh before the lockdown and has been apparently really good in training so uh it looks like you know he might have have the shirt as it were for that for that united game and what next to spurs between now and the united game they've got a friendly uh, on friday against norwich so teams are allowed to play friendlies against one another but they need to be within i think it's 90 minutes uh and it has to be teams they've played both times in the league already uh, and they've actually played Norwich. Spurs have played Norwich uh, three times because they played them in the FA Cup um, just before the shutdown as well. So yeah, they'll have that on Friday. Obviously, this, the training's all stepping up. I mean, it's kind of crazy because it's, it's it'll be three weeks in total uh, of contact training, which is you know a very constricted preseason. So everyone has to hit the ground running in training. Um, 
And then, yeah, all eyes on United. I mean, I wrote a piece on what training has looked like and how Mourinho has been getting the guys going. And, you know, for the most part, the emphasis was on the psychological because if you can't put things into practice on the training pitch, there's only so much use that going through things, um, you know, really achieves. But now, obviously... They are back in training and they can do a bit more of those sort of things. It, it, it's strange as well because James and I were talking about this, having a pre-season that's also the build-up to a massive game because you think of pre-seasons normally, A, it's rare that the fixture computer um, you know, throws up. I make it sound as if it's random. Uh, you know, It's rare that you have massive games on the first weekend of the season. Often you wait a little bit for those. And also, even if you do, even if you're playing a big rival, it's still the first game of 38. Whereas this, after a long break, they're going into what is a massive game in the run-in, essentially. So, um, yeah, stepping up in the next couple of weeks in the build-up to that. Elsewhere at Tottenham last week, there were two developments on Thursday we should mention. One is that uh, someone from Tottenham Hotspur tested positive for coronavirus um the club announced that on thursday afternoon we're not going to speculate as to who it is um also on thursday we did a story about tottenham borrowing 175 million pounds from the bank of england as part of the covid corporate finance facility which is a program of loan interest loans to companies who have an investment grade credit rating which spurs have to help with liquidity during the obvious problems brought on by coronavirus because we all know that spurs have been hit because they would have expected to have an awful lot of revenue from the stadium during this time as well as all the kind of non-football events which they had booked at the tottenham hotspur stadium for the summer such as guns and roses lady gaga nfl anthony joshua rugby league rugby union none of which is happening however tottenham did say when they took this loan that none of it will be used for transfers and we know that they're not really expecting to spend any money on transfers in the window that will fall between the two seasons. Charlie, what if anything can Spurs fans expect during that window? Well, my understanding is that, you know, any outgoings uh, transfer-wise will be uh, you know, money that's come in. So, you know, if they can get a few players off the wage bill and off the books, then they'll have a bit of money available, but Otherwise, yeah, it'll mainly be free transfers and that kind of thing. So it's going to be, it'll come down to smart scouting uh, and and developing the players that they have, you know, the young guys that are coming through. Also, a lot of their rivals are going to be in a similar position. Yes, we've seen Chelsea go out and spend a lot of money on Timo Werner. I don't think that's going to be typical. Uh, you look at Arsenal, who obviously are a big rival of Spurs, both geographically, but also for that top four uh, well, traditionally, obviously, this season has been a bit of an anomaly uh, and they're not going to be spending money either. So, yes, it looks like, you know, you hear that at first and you think, wow, that's pretty shocking. Tottenham not spending money or maybe that's not shocking given <laughs> some of the previous seasons. But given the the rebuild that it was felt was needed, that maybe came as a surprise. But I do think in the climate that we're about to be in, it might not seem so strange. And so, yeah, it'll be judicious um scouting and the odd free transfer and that kind of thing will become even more important james are you ready for spurs to go into next season with a squad that's pretty similar to what they have at the moment <laughs> i mean i can't say i'd be particularly surprised i don't think even before this uh this crisis we we expected a, a massive overhaul that was going to involve bringing in sort of 50 and 60 million pound players um tell me if i'm wrong there but that certainly wasn't my expectation so 
yeah, cl- clearly it's a situation that's massively changed the financial uh, landscape for, for every club, in the, or more or less every club in the Premier League and beyond. Um, and, and yeah, as, as Charlie says, you know, it, it's going to be a, maybe an opportunity for, for Chelsea to really sort of cement themselves in, in that top four, given they won't really have the same uh, financial restrictions as, as clubs like Spurs and Arsenal. And you suspect... You know, Wolves and Sheffield United, and anyone else kind of competing from just sort of outside. I suppose possibly Leicester as well. Um, and from what we hear about Liverpool and this Werner deal, it sounds like the the ongoing situation was kind of a factor in that from their perspective as well. So, you know, even they are, are seemingly going to kind of have to cut their cloth accordingly. Um, you know, I, I think Spurs are kind of used to not spending the money, so I don't think it's going to be a massive surprise to the fans, as, as frustrating as it might be. And as bad as that timing might seem, uh, you know, two or three years ago, maybe, obviously it did actually happen. So, you know, if it had coincided with that, it would have <laughs> perhaps would have been better timing, but they're going to have to find a way of making it work. You know, the uh, Mourinho has brought Tanganga into the squad uh, in the second half of this season and he's done pretty well. So I, I suspect you can expect to see him featuring regularly again next season. Whether or not there's a couple more players up his up his sleeve, I mean, obviously Skip, we haven't really seen a lot of, but he's clearly massively talented and could maybe plug a gap as well. So I guess the players they target maybe could be determined by what they've got in the academy that they feel is on the cusp of being ready for first-team football. But, you know, it is in these situations that sometimes you do see brilliant players come out of academies. And we saw that, you know, out, out, out of necessity early in Pochettino's reign with, with Kane... And to an extent, you know, players like Mason and Ben Taleb and Townsend as well. So that that would be the positive side of that, I guess, you'd have to kind of cling to. But it's clearly, uh, let, let's put it this way, I doubt Jose Mourinho <laughs> had that in mind when he took the job in November. Let's put it that way. I guess as well, just maybe part of the reason I was saying about it being a surprise you could argue that since last summer, once the stadium was in place, it felt like the purse strings had been loosened a little. I mean, Ndombele cost a lot of money. The Celso came in, Cessnion came in. Th- these were signings that they just weren't making uh, whilst the stadium was being built. So you you could think that were it not for this pandemic, this summer would have been a continuation of that, given that you know they were in at, you know in that financial year they were in rude health. So we'll we'll never know, but. Um, it did feel like it was a slight departure in that transfer policy. And now it's going to be a regression because just as the hands were tied by the stadium build, now the hands are tied by a global pandemic. So it is, uh, it's been a strange few years. Yeah. And you do have, you know, and you're right to mention that because there are a kind of clutch of kind of eight or nine really, really good for their position young players. If you, you know, you look at Sessegnon, Lo Celso, uh, Ndombele, Deli Alley is still only what, like 23, 24? 24. 24. Bergvine came in for 30 million in January. Sanchez is only, I think, 23, 24. For, for a centre back, that is still pretty young. So, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, Winks is still young. We talked about Tanganga and Skip. So it's not like the whole squad is a sort of creaking, lumbering mess. There's a lot of potential there. I and mean, it's just going to be a case of uh, finding a way of sort of plugging the gaps, really. And you could say as well, it's good that they managed to get rid of some of the players like Ericsson um, before this all happened. I mean, I know he would have been out of contract, but at least they've been able to make a sale that there's absolutely yeah. no way they'd have been able to make um, if we're talking about that now. Something else I wanted to I wanted to mention was 
a really interesting interview that Adam Crafton's done with Ander Herrera, uh, formerly of Manchester United, now of PSG, which we ran on The Athletic this morning, uh, in which he goes into quite a lot of detail about all the managers he's worked for, including a fascinating comparison of Bielsa and Van Gaal, but in which he talks a lot about Mourinho and both the pluses and the minuses of Mourinho at United. He said that Mourinho is the best manager in the world when things go well, in his relationship with the players, the way he treats people in his training sessions. But then he also points to the collapse in Mourinho's third season, saying that it stemmed from the uh, the confrontations that Mourinho was having with the club, most notably about transfers. Um, which is interesting, as you know, now that Mourinho is at Tottenham, of course, I think we have to think a bit more carefully about his time at Chelsea, Manchester United, and what went wrong and why, and what lessons Spurs might learn from this. But yeah, in ter- in terms of looking looking at both the pluses and the minuses of Mourinho as a coach, I thought it was a really interesting piece. We have a 30-day free trial running at the moment on The Athletic, so if you want to read Adam's interview with Andrew Herrera or any of our other stuff for free, uh, you can go to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. That's theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod to sign up for your free 30-day trial. Can I recommend another piece? Please do. So Andy Mitten has written a piece... Uh, primarily with David May, uh, about what it was like to share a room on away trips with Eric Cantona, which is not the kind of thing I, I, you would necessarily think about. But w- when you think of that dynamic of David May, a kind of, with respect to a, a kind of squad player in that Manchester United side, really, of the 90s, that great side. Uh, and Eric Cantona is clearly like the most iconic player of the early Premier League era. It's quite a fascinating dynamic. It's basically sitcom material, really. Because it does sound like the original Odd Couple. Oh, yeah, it very much does, yeah. Um, and they used to watch Coronation Street together, uh, which just the idea of Eric Cantona sitting in some sort of mediocre hotel watching Coronation Street with David <laughs> May, I, I find very amusing. That dynamic is that whole room, rooming together thing is is quite funny. When I spoke to Ramel Vega in the season, he was talking about rooming with Ginola. And again, you just think how many funny stories and he was talking about Ginola like smoking out the window and this kind of thing and you just think god football was so different then yeah and it's not even that long ago is it the idea of it but now I mean you just wouldn't get two Premier League players sharing a hotel room on an away trip would mm. you it just wouldn't happen I mean not just because of uh, current circumstances but you know even in normal times you wouldn't get two players in one room watching Coronation Street which we should do a piece on this the rise and fall of rooming room mm. sharing <laughs> <laughs> who was the last club? Who was the last club to do it? I bet it was Burnley. <laughs> Burnley oh, wow. Like the whole Sean Dyche thing is what, like last season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's you know recreating the kind of the standards and values of football from the good old days. I mean, England, England were doing it in the tournaments, weren't they? Until fairly recently, I think. I, I, I'm sure in 2010, didn't they? Didn't they share rooms? Really. I think so. I, I mean, I can be believe it in that kind of Capello dictatorship. Um, Again, thinking that that's a good way of like building characters. I mean, I'd love them yeah. to have to do like a hostel and all sleep in the same dorm. <laughs> um, and, and, and Son Heung Min, to be fair, I mean, he was in uh, the the equivalent, wasn't he? In the uh, yeah, that's in true, South yeah. Korea recently for his military service. So. And Ollie Kay's just written a fantastic piece on the 2010 World Cup, uh, speaking to an awful lot of the England players who were there, which really explains just how uh, suffocating the atmosphere was at the England camp and how badly it all went on the pitch. So, uh, for a- any of you who remember just how bad that campaign was compared to the expectations that we had. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting piece too. 
something else that I enjoyed reading the other day was Charlie, you you wrote a big piece about Jan Vertonghen's future and how, you know, as a Spurs player, it's not really got long, very much long to go. Can you explain what explain what the situation is there? Yeah, so his his contract uh, is technically up at the end of June, but there's this. Um clause or rule that's been introduced meaning they can extend players who are out of contract at the end of june which was meant to be effectively the end of the season um in a couple of weeks they can uh, there's a deadline and they can extend it until the end of the rearranged season um and then leave then and and that's the expectation that that's what vertonghen's going to do but he could just leave at the end of june um you know he'd be free to join another club then he wouldn't be free to play for another club then um He'd have to wait. So, yeah, so it kind of looks at that dilemma that he's facing. Um, and I should say as well, Dom Fifield does a, has done a really good piece on the, this issue more broadly because obviously it's not Vertonghen. There are uh, lots of players, some quite high profile, Ryan Fraser, Adam Lallana, who are out of contract and having to weigh up whether, well, do I want to carry on playing and I could risk injury and scupper my move. Um, so it is, it's a big call that these guys have got to make. With the Tongan, I just think it's interesting because, you know, for for a guy who, you know, the last eight years has been such a stalwart for for Tottenham and you know been one of their best players of the modern era, it does feel like a slightly inauspicious way for him to bow out. Um, but then I was thinking about it, and kind of the direction the piece goes is that were he to you know stay, carry on playing in spite of the risk of injury, uh, and you know, the understanding is he will get minutes because yes, he might not be first choice, but there are going to be so many games. So Mourinho is going to have to rotate and he's perfectly willing to play for Tongan. I mean, if you remember, Christian Eriksen played a lot in January, uh, right up until he went. So he will get minutes. And so there is the opportunity that he could still play a part in Spurs getting into the Champions League. And, and that would be a really cool way and a fitting way, I think, for him to go because um, as we've written about this season, he he has been such an important player for them uh, over the last almost a decade. Um, but yeah, he'll have to make that decision within a couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah, we expect that he will stay until the end of the season. Um, but who knows what a, a lot of these other guys will do because there there is uh, there is a risk involved. I think that's just football, isn't it? Like Pochettino didn't get a farewell. Eriksson didn't get a farewell. Uh, not sure if Dembele got a farewell. Like most... Very, very, very few people in football get to choose the circumstances of their, of their departure. And for every, for every play, like whether it's Ferguson or Wenger or even players who retire and then get a big farewell, like they are the they are the very, very lucky ones, aren't they? And most. But this is kind of the worst of both worlds, isn't it? Because it's like a sort of long goodbye without the actual goodbye and like the sort of opportunity to show appreciation and whatever. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'm sure there'll be some sort of match he'll come back to at some point next season or whenever else when fans are there uh, and he'll get an amazing ovation. But it's not quite the same as playing for the club properly for the last time and you know being substituted off or doing a lap of honour or whatever. Charlie, where do we expect Vertonghen to end up? So the likelihood is he's going to move to Italy uh, or Spain. Um, there's been talk of Ajax, but our understanding is that will be kind of his next move after this. He'll probably want to finish his career then, but he's still... Feels he can do it in one of the top leagues. He wants to learn another language, live in another country um, that he hasn't lived in before. So it looks most likely Italy. But again, I look at this in the piece and most of the clubs he's being linked with, so Inter, Roma, Napoli, all of them for different reasons are in a bit of a holding pattern. Um, 
Roma are in the midst of a takeover that's been delayed. Uh, Inter, I mean, they generally favour these players coming towards the end of their contract. We saw that with Ericsson, um, but they're not sure yet on their transfer plans. Napoli, it's dependent on Koulibaly. Uh, and again, there's uncertainty there because he's a player who, in normal circumstances, yes, a big club would probably have come in for him, but who knows what's going to happen now. So this is kind of the issue that, yes, these players have loads of power, the ones on freeze, because um, you know they're obviously very desirable, the absence of a transfer fee and having to negotiate with the club. But you're still talking about pretty big wages. I mean, Vertonghen's on 70 grand a week. Uh, which for someone who's 33 is quite a lot of money and he wants at least two years. So now, you know, financial decisions that would have been signed off pretty easily, all of a sudden clubs are having to give quite a lot of thought to. And it's very hard to make these decisions when they don't even know if the season's going to finish yet. So everyone's a little bit in limbo. And I just thought how much had changed in the six months since Alderweireld signed his new deal and the feeling was that Vertonghen would be next. It was just sorting out a few of the issues. And you think, how much has changed since then with um, yeah, with, with the uncertainty that there is? And now, who knows where he's going to end up? But the thought is that it probably will be Syria. But he may just have to wait a little bit until there's a bit more clarity on seasons finishing and, and that kind of thing. You do think on a personal level, I'd sort of question the temptation to go and live in a new country where you don't know the language when there's every possibility you're going to be sort of sat, sat indoors pretty much constantly at like outside training, which, which, you know, if there is a second wave, which obviously we hope doesn't happen, and obviously it would be determined by which country he went to. But that, that, it does feel like you're not really going to necessarily be experiencing the best of that country if you go there in the next sort of two or three months. It does seem like a sort of, I, I, I mean, obviously he's his own man. He has to make his own decision for his, for his career and for his family. But to me, the idea of going and living somewhere completely new right now seems sort of not particularly appealing. He has a more inquiring mind than you do, though, James. Well, yeah, well, he definitely does. Yeah, like, but we should say Vertonghen is a guy who is very, like, he loves living in cities and he loves learning and being around kind of culture and having new experiences. Like he, This all feels like a big digger me now. No, no, not <laughs> He's uh, everything James isn't. Does it, all, it, it would all be entirely correct. But you know, he so he famously he's from Belgium, but he really uh he he loved living in Amsterdam when he played for Ajax and he really took to Amsterdam as a place and enjoyed the whole kind of cultural scene there. And then in London, when he moved to Tottenham, you know, he's not one of those who lives in kind of leafy Hertfordshire. I think he lives around Belsize Park and again mm. loves the kind of London experience and going to the theatre and uh, I remember he once Instagrammed from seeing some, I think it's Romeo and Juliet at the Globe. Uh, so he's clearly someone who, you know, who he doesn't just want to be living in his kind of footballer, like an identical footballer mansion anywhere and would relish the kind of experience of living in Rome or Naples or Milan or wherever it is that he ends up. His wife's a theatre director, I think. She certainly works in theatre, um, which ties into, you know, to that. Uh, to that interest and he's yeah as you say he's a big reader likes his board games um what's not to like assuming that he's only going to play a few more games for spurs how uh james how do you think he will be remembered uh i mean massively fondly massively i mean uh, you know we've talked quite extensively about how he struggled this season and you can't hide that but i think when a player's been at a club for so long you have to kind of fo- focus very much on the on the good which was um, I mean, probably over those first 
seven years, maybe bar the kind of Tim Sherwood era when he was in and out of a team. I mean, his, his level of performance is really high. I mean, that, it, it, you know, straight from that first season under Vias Bars, where he was, he was absolutely superb. The kind of centre back we hadn't really seen that much of in English football in terms of kind of bringing the ball out and trying to get involved in attacks, even even from centre-back, even when he wasn't playing at left-back. Uh, you know, he's got a great, a great personality and for the reasons that, that Charlie underlined there, you know, he's qu- quite different to, to your average footballer. Uh, and I think that's kind of been reflected in in his popularity with the fans. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll be massively fondly remembered as one of the kind of, one of the, the great players of the modern era at the club. Um, you know, and we'll say this about a few players, I guess, uh, as they leave. And we said it about Ericsson, but it's just a shame he didn't didn't win a trophy while uh, while he was at the club. He was in my um, the piece we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the uh, or last week actually, the Tottenham's best overseas player of uh, of the century. And he it was so hard narrowing down to six, and he got an honourable mention in in that list, but wasn't in the six, and that had quite a lot of pushback. Um, you know, I think his longevity and yeah, the the service he's provided over a longer period of time for a lot of people thought that he he definitely should be uh, higher up in that conversation. Yeah, I love Vertonghen. I think he's been an amazing player for Tottenham. Um, I think, it, like James says, in terms of consistency, longevity, quality... It's politically sound as well. Yeah, yeah. He, he has got good politics. Uh, he's been fantastic. He's also uh, one of those players who really made the whole Pochettino system work. Like, for Pochettino's football to work, you need... A centre back who can play high up the pitch, who can put, who can bring, who can build up play, who can also like be aggressive in trying to win the ball back, and that's what Vertonghen was. You'd often see Vertonghen kind of, you know, perched on the halfway line, but then as soon as Spurs would lose it, he'd kind of dart forward to try and nick it back. So he was fantastic, really, in terms of how he allowed Spurs to play. And you know, in many ways, I think kind of the the story of Vertonghen has been the story of Tottenham in the sense that when he showed up, there might have been the sense of you know, kind of talent, talented, but maybe slightly unfulfilled in those first two years. And then really it was the arrival of Pochettino that heralded this great kind of, um, what's the best way of putting it? it? He basically, that was the moment when he started to really fulfil his potential, just like the whole club. And he was so good in those times. And re- again, like Pochettino, he, last season was really the end, it was the climax, but it was also the end of it. Like we never, you know, he, he, I don't think he's ever really done I don't think he's ever contributed more for Spurs than he did in those two games against Dortmund. We make an awful lot about the City and the Ajax games in the Champions League run last year, but I remember speaking to Pochino just before the final, and he said, "Right, he said, don't forget about Dortmund, because you know Spurs beating Dortmund what was it four 0 over two legs was in in itself a fantastic achievement, and people, you know, not everybody expected that when the draw was made. Um, but Vertonghen was heroic playing at left wing back in that at Wembley." Um, you know, up and down, show it really the last time we ever saw him run like that. And then in the second leg in, in Germany, Spurs were under so much pressure. And Fatongan was fantastic, throwing himself in front of everything, helping to make sure that Spurs saw out their lead. So yeah, he he has been a, a brilliant servant to the club. And it, it like like we said a minute ago, it, it is a shame that he won't get the kind of goodbye that he deserves. Um, another fantastic servant for Tottenham Hotspur was Paul Robinson. Uh, Charlie, you interviewed Paul the other day. Uh, again, so this is a story that went up on The Athletic this morning, I think. It's a fantastic read. Um, what did you make of him? Really enjoyed chatting to him. We spoke for a long time, a couple of hours. Um, and there was so much to it. You know, you sometimes, 
finish an interview and you think, you know, what what shall I, you know, is there enough here? With this, there was way, way more than enough. And, and the challenge was kind of piecing it all together. So we we talked about loads of things. And um, obviously we touched on his time at Tottenham, which he really loved and had this affinity with the fans. Uh, and he still got, they made a banner for him on his birthday, a happy birthday Robbo, uh, which they sort of chucked to him and he still has. Uh, and he talked really fondly about that. But kind of the crux of the interview and his career was that game against Croatia for England in 2006, where he makes not even really an error. I mean, Gary Neville passes the ball back, it hits a divot, he misses his kick and it goes in. But it became something inevitably that, you know, the media seized upon. Uh, he, you know, got tons of abuse about it from all opposition fans. And it obviously did have a pretty big impact on him. And he, you do look at his career trajectory and it is quite a, a clear turning point. Um, and he was just really interesting talking about that and about the fact that, you know, had that been now, he'd like to think that there is a bit more, um, you know, appreciation for what sports people go through. And, you know, there's not such a requirement that men never show weakness. You know, he thinks he would have been better off talking about it and also if there had been more of a dialogue and more of an awareness about that sort of thing at that time having a manager who just said to him like look take a couple of weeks off you know this is clearly a difficult thing that you're having to deal with everyone's getting at you just just take a bit of time off and come back recharged but he said that wasn't really something that was done at that time and and even if it had been he would have been like absolutely not i need to keep playing um this coincided as well after that and he had a drop in form then Juan de Ramos replaced Martin Yole and yeah Robinson doesn't really pull punches on Ramos he really uh says they didn't see eye to eye and 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 the thing that Robinson talks about a lot is is communication and man management so Robinson wants to become a manager himself and one of the things that you know was most important to him of all the managers he played with was good man management and you know, just having communication and a dialogue and telling you why you weren't in the team. And, you know, he said with Ramos, obviously there was this communication issue anyway because he couldn't speak good English, but he would just be asking him, why am I not playing? What's going on? And just would be cold-shouldered. He said the same thing happened with Fabio Capello, who you know, we mentioned earlier. He talked about that being a dictatorship and there just being no explanation, no scope for having a conversation and that kind of thing. Um, he spoke really highly about Sam Allardyce and it was there, it was under him at Blackburn that he got his career back on track really. Um, and then at Blackburn he had a blood clot that with a routine operation that he nearly died from. Um, he then retired, then came back six months later because he wanted one last hurrah and got that at Burnley under Sean Dyche, played a few games in the Premier League and and could kind of bow out on his terms almost 20 years after he'd started at Leeds. And, you know, at Leeds, he had this amazing time. He was part of that incredibly exciting young team that got to the Champions League semi-final. And there he was, you know, around about 20 years old, keeping Rivaldo out, playing against Luis Figo's Real Madrid. Uh, they played Milan that season, Lazio. It really was like fantasy stuff. And then, of course, Leeds had their whole collapse um so yeah lo loads to talk about and he's a really good talker uh thoughtful guy uh he does a lot of punditry work now and from the sounds of it takes that very seriously but yeah i mean i'd be really curious to see how he gets on if he does decide he wants to go into management or coaching because 
he's clearly thought deeply about it and really wants to learn the lessons um, from the things he did like and didn't like as a player. James, what are your what are your memories of him? Did you make that banner? Were you one of the banners? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't make that banner. I think I think I mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago, but I missed the uh, the goal against Watford because I was looking in the wrong direction. Just looking over towards the Watford fans, I'm assuming there was some sort of uh, a bawdy banter going on. Um, yeah, and kind of turned away for this sort of innocuous free kick deep in the deep in the Spurs half, and look back just as the ball has bounced over. Ben Foster's head and Ben Foster of course I think a lot of people will remember had sort of been given it a big one in the press in the week before the game that he was going to he was going to become England's number one he was going to take take the shirt away from Robinson and then uh, in a way that I don't think anyone expected Paul Robinson kind of rammed that back down his throat uh, with this incredible and, and entirely intentional 100 yard goal I was just going to say with Robinson because he, he also scored for Leeds it was a header right it's- yeah, I think it's the most like proper goal ever scored by a goalkeeper. You know how normally goalkeeper goals just have a whiff of either they're fluky and they're kind of booted from their own area or they still look just a bit unnatural like someone... Yeah, like a bit of a scramble sort of like that Jimmy Glass one where it's just all kind of arms and legs everywhere. Or they just like sort of smash a ball as hard as they can. This is a properly good header. Like it looks like an outfielder or, you know, a, a predatory striker. Just really impressive. One thing that really comes through in the piece is how how good he was in that like Martin Yol era, or basically from as soon as he joined Spurs. How good was he back then? Because it's quite a long time ago now. Yeah, he was he was really good. I mean, I think in the piece Charlie talks a bit about his record of England, which I think you, you may need to remind him in now, Charlie. I think it was sort of like fourteen clean sheets in nineteen competitive matches, or something like that. Yeah, in his first seventeen competitive games, he concedes five goals for England. I mean, that is pretty, incredible, pretty impressive. Really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of those will be qualifiers against Andorra or whoever, but you can't really quibble with that, can you? And yeah, he, he came in at Spurs and, and was incredibly steady. Perhaps not amazingly spectacular as a goalkeeper, but in that in that day and age, I think you I mean he was he was pretty much, if not the best in the Premier League, certainly in the top two or three, I'd say. Uh, and then you know that that incident that event, uh, I mean, it's probably even harsh to call it an error, as we say, uh, against Croatia just. Over the fo- over the space of the following eighteen months, just kind of seemed to really sort of eat away at him, and yeah, he, he lost a lot of confidence. And you could kind of see in his sort of decision making and whatever, it, it just didn't feel quite right. And you know, it was a, it, it was sad to see a player who you know, as Charlie was saying, was massively popular with the fans, lose his place in the team and and just kind of sort of fade away. Really, I mean, the, the one good thing obviously was that he got he got to play in that League Cup final in two thousand and eight, which I mean. I think I'm right in saying he hadn't played a league game in a two months beforehand. And I think really the expectation was that Cherney was going to play in goal, I think, in that final. But in the end, Robinson played. I think as well, it's, it's just so... In, I realised, because I did um, podcast, the Football Clichés pod uh, we did on goalkeepers a couple of weeks ago. So we talked about them at length and how you know different they are from from outfield players. And, and I realised, I'm not sure I'd interviewed uh, a goalkeeper in that kind of depth before. And, and it is just so interesting because you are so exposed and if you make a mistake you know all eyes are on you and it's really hard to know what to then to do and he talks about how the worst thing you can do in which he felt maybe he was guilty of was you you try and create something for you to do because you really want to atone for it and he was saying that's the absolute worst thing you can do Um, and it's not like 
a, a, if you have a bad game and you become the number two in that position, that could be it. You might not then play again for a year or two years. Whereas, you know, if you're a central midfielder or something, even if you're no longer first choice, you're going to get minutes. You could play like 30 odd games a season. And if you're, you know, there's that old adage, if you're not playing well, just run around loads, put a shift in. You, you just can't do that as a keeper. It's it's really hard to to get that back. And, and he said like the the battering your ego takes because there's such a clear hierarchy at any club or in any country and you're no longer the number one and everyone knows that and it it just feels like such an exposing position to play more so than any others and I know that's obvious but it, it did just bring it home to me I mean, I think particularly with England, when you're England's number one, and we've seen this happen with a few goalkeepers, both before and since, and I think it sort of happened a little bit with Pickford, and if it hasn't yet, it definitely will, that you, you're kind of there to be shot at. And I, I, without wanting to be disrespectful, the thing is when you're playing for England, a lot of people who don't really get football are watching and uh, passionate about it. And, you know, mm. you're, you're, we, I think it's right to say that that error wasn't really entirely his fault. And obviously, you know, he could and perhaps should have done better. But it's not like he he kind of let one scrum under his body that was, was a routine save. You know, it was a, it was a freak, really, uh, at worst. And he got absolutely hammered. And he just, you know, if he'd made that mistake in a Spurs shirt, you just don't think he would have been exposed in quite the same way. And obviously, you know, the media kind of piling onto him as well won't have helped. And you, you can see how you can get into that negative spiral uh, really easily. And I, 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 speaking as a fan, I kind of, I wouldn't really want Spurs to have an England goalkeeper again, just because mm. you saw how good Robinson was and how quickly it all unraveled. You've seen that happen with other goalkeepers too since, you know, it happened with Joe Hart, it happened to an extent, I, I know they weren't in a team for as long, but with guys like, like Carson. Um, so, totally. uh, you know, David James came back in in 2000. Uh, whenever it was he made a mistake and got kicked out uh rob green against the usa in 2010 yeah you know again one mistake in that game against the usa a, a much worse mistake he's out and i don't think he really uh, did he play for england again after that i'm not sure that he did barely i mean that's what it's really interesting because when paul robinson uh gets his chance first for he plays his first competitive game in 2004 and it's off the back of a david james error and all right james had made a few it wasn't the first but you know, Robinson at that time spoke about how tough that is and how, you know, there is so much pressure on the England keeper. And then he obviously then loses his place because of something similar. And the game in which he does is that massive Croatia, the return game, which is the kind of crunch game for Euro 2008. And Scott Carson then gets the nod and he makes yeah. a really big error. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, the headline to the piece, which is, a you know, a quote uh, from the interview and Robinson says, and this is, you know, him paraphrasing the media perception was, you know, I was the best keeper in England, then suddenly the worst who'd ever played. And someone in the comments said they saw that quote and thought it was an interview with Joe Hart, which I thought was interesting. It's really similar. Yeah, it could be Robinson, it could be Hart, it could be so many who've had that same uh, trajectory in the eyes of the public. Um, it, it's, yeah, very, very tough position. I remember thinking going into the 2006 World Cup that I remember thinking he was like the best goalkeeper there was. I didn't think... He seemed to be coming off the back of really, really good form with Tottenham. Yeah, I mean, Petr Cech would probably have, have been his main rival at that time. And, and at that World Cup, he kept four out of five. In the five games he played, he kept clean sheets in four of them. So, you know, he had a really good tournament. He talks as well about facing penalties. And I love that sort of uh, conversation. Like, I couldn't include too much in it because I, the, the piece is long enough and I thought maybe it's too niche. But um, yeah, he talks about facing penalties and all the prep that goes into that. 
little ticks you pick up from other players and that he was so confident that shootout England lost to Portugal he said he went into it being like I know everything I you know this is my moment I'm going to be a hero and then and, and he did go the right way on a couple and they they missed a couple Portugal in that shootout but he talks about the fact that they know that you know all of that stuff so it becomes this like double triple bluff and yeah, just such a mental game. Um, but clearly, you know, he really did back himself and it was so disappointing for him that, that England lost that shootout and he felt that had they got through because that had been their best performance of the tournament by a distance, that nil-nil draw with Portugal where with 10 men, they really dug in. He, You know, it was tough not to think about what might have been um, had they won that game. Well, it's a, it's a really, really interesting interview that Charlie's done. Uh, you can read it on theathletic.com. If you're not a subscriber, you can have a 30-day free trial using promo code SPURSPOD. That's theathletic.com forward slash SPURSPOD. Thank you very much, Charlie and James and Tom. Uh, Listeners, if there's anything you want us to discuss next week in our last podcast before football returns, uh, just tweet us and let us know. Otherwise, we'll see you again next week.